So I don't think that Germans are a model. I think that they, there's a lot to, that they need to still learn, especially this sort of constant negotiation about Namibia and calling it a genocide, apologizing, not apologizing, sort of tiptoeing back, like the recognition of that um, is huge. Also the Majimashi uh, uh, war in Tanzania. So, I mean, like you have all of these things going on in terms of German colonial um, depossession and genocide uh, and racial killing that feed into the racial science of the Nazis. And that, you know, Eugene Fisher, he was, you know, he was a, uh, one of the primary architects of the sort of racial science of the Nazis. Was, was very, very significant in Namibia, really helping to sort of dehumanize and create this sense of the other in terms of, so the, the Namia and Herero people. So I don't think that the Germans are a model. And I think what's so striking about that is there, that, that sort of the Holocaust oftentimes allows people to forget their sort of German colonialism as a, a precursor for this exclusionary and genocidal um, tendencies in which, Germanus is is offered as Germanus is offered as a sort of model for whiteness in which um, you know Africans from Namibia or her, um, or um, from Tanzania, Togo, etc., are never going to have access to Germanus. Welcome to Decolonization in Action podcasts, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This podcast is co-hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. This is Season 3, Episode 6. This episode features Dr. Tiffany Florville. Tiffany Florville is an associate professor of 20th century European women's and gender history at the University of New Mexico. She specializes in the histories of post-1945 Europe, the African and Black diaspora, social movements, feminism, Black internationalism, gender, and sexuality. She received her PhD in modern history from the University of South Carolina and her MA in European women's and gender history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She has published numerous pieces in the Journal of Civil and Human Rights and the German Quarterly. Florville has co-edited the volume Rethinking Black German Studies and has published chapters in To Turn This Whole World Over, Gendering Knowledge in Africa and the African Diaspora, and Audre Lorde's Transnational Legacies. Her forthcoming manuscript, Mobilizing Black Germany, Afro-German Women, and the Making of a Transnational Movement with the University of Illinois Press, Thank you for joining us today on the Decolonization in Action podcast. Thank you for having me. What a great invitation. So after three years of living here in Berlin, I found that there are there's a heterogeneous community of Black, European, African, African diasporic people from the Americas who live in Germany. And many of them are writing, protesting, telling their own narratives about what it means to be Black in Europe today. And you recently published a book, Mobilizing Black Germany, Afro-German, Women and the Making of a Transnational Movement, which focuses on the birth and evolution of the Black German movement from the 1980s to the 2000s. I wanted to ask you what motivated you to write this book and to uh, have this intellectual journey to describe such an important um, history that's in the making. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I was influenced by my own experiences living in Germany um, as a as an exchange student back in the day, um, and I was struck by the 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 fact that the narrative of German German identity in the post forty five context was always like, wow, they're progressive, they're not racist, they get it. And my own personal experiences were the exact opposite. So I was called the N word at my gymnasium. I had, I was told I, I brought in drugs because I was, you know, connect, allegedly connected to like the, the African community in Hamburg. And so all of these interesting dynamics made me wonder, wonder about Black German experiences. And so 
I was drawn to this experience of the diaspora through my own like racialized experiences in Germany. And so the book basically is about sort of looking at how Black Germans mobilize, how they forge connections with other Black German um, Black German people, namely how they forge connections with Black um, American feminists and why feminism was such an important part of the movement. And it looks at how transnational um, transnationalism took shape in the movement. It took shape through their ability to forge connections not only with people, other people of the African diaspora in Berlin by going to conferences, connecting with people in um, South Africa, in Canada, in the UK, and also from Black Germans, um, sort of Black Germans' own sort of heterogeneous backgrounds. Some of them coming from um, ancestry from Ghana, Nigeria, the Dominican Republic. I mean, so the identity of Black German is so heterogeneous and diverse in itself. And so I think the book tries to sort of chart that lineage of like sort of, yes, there's been earlier instances of mobilization, Black diasporic mobilization, not only in the metropole, but also in the colonies, and that the 80s incarnation of mobilization is a sort of modern, modern uh, approach that builds on those sort of legacies of previous anti-colonial and anti-racism activism in, in the diaspora in, in Germany, but also in the colonies. Can you tell me a little bit more about the early experience you had study in Germany, because you indicated that you were at gymnasium, which uh, for those who don't understand or know about the German system, that's equivalent to secondary school or what in the United States people call high school. However, the German system, um, at least uh, for some time, has been set up in a tracked system whereby there's a kind of vocational track for those who are more learning and doing skilled uh, or manual and or technical labor and that's the path that is decided quite early on around the age of 11 or 12 and then there's a gymnasium which you mentioned that you went to which prepares uh, young Germans and young people who are studying Germany for college and university and some and again that's that's decisions made early on so in some ways the, the path that one has whether they go to gymnasium or uh, Realschule then that determines if they can go to college or not. However, some people have remarked that that division is also divided by ethnic and racial background. That is to say, if a parent, if people come from quote unquote migrant backgrounds or from the global south, then they may not necessarily find themselves in a gymnasium. Can you tell me what the composition for your gymnasium was in Hamburg, is it, when you were there? Yeah, the composition was overwhelmingly white. Um, there, and I was in a sort of English license course, which is basically just like, um, it's comparable to sort of the IB program in the US, um, so that you take higher level courses in a number of fields, and then you take lower level courses in a variety of subjects, and so I took, um, English Leistungs and Geschichte Leistungs course. Um, so those were my two sort of Leistungs courses that I took. And it was sort of overwhelmingly white, but then also some Turkish Germans. And then a few black Germans were in the mix, but very, very few. And so I remember walking around, walking across the, the schoolyard and then hearing, you know, little kids screaming the N-word at me and then running away and laughing. And so I think my, in my English license course, I was one of two people of color in the course. Um, in my Geschichte license course, I was one of, I was the only person of color in the course. So I think the numbers, the tracking of, uh, of students into the gymnasium track is very exclusionary. It's also tied to class and ethnicity and race. And I certainly was an exchange student. So I you know, made the request to be in an English and a Geschichte license course. So I said, oh, you know, I had no German. I had no, I had a very limited German. So I was like, I'm just gonna learn anyway um, and see what I would, would, would do. But I think the experiences were very interesting in the sense that like, it was a, it's a total contrast to my high school in the US in which I was like, I was one of many um, black students at a South Florida high school of which I was also many, I was also like a five black students who were in IB courses in my, in my high school, which is also not, not rare um, in the US um, case. So I think I came from a, a completely different dynamic and so, my German gymnasium was basically a culture shock. So I was like, wait a minute, they say that they're progressive, but I don't see, I see a limited expression of diversity in the composition of students here. 
and the stereotypes that were made uh, in my English license course by my my teacher about like Americans and the 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 jokes that were that he laughed at that weren't funny but also like you know making fun of American culture and English. So I think it was a, a learning experience, but I was also so very I think it was sort of that experience that exchange year and then of course subsequent years living in Germany but that exchange year in particular also pushed me to like really cling on to like my my cultural identity in the U.S. so I was like I am a black woman who's Afro-Caribbean like I am you know I come from ancestors that are you know that come from the from Haiti and Trinidad and so I really clung on to my like Caribbean identity with a fierceness in Germany and I think it was also there that I was like it was also the first time I was really away from my mom for a long time and so there are a number of things at play in which I was like I'm such a racialized being here but I'm also going to I'm also going to recognize my, that my my racialized identity is an important identity to me um, and so I I think that helped me help me deal but I also felt like I I need to learn more about why I don't see a lot of black people here and why they why they are why these stereotypes are so archaic and and disruptive. Well, one thing I would like to ask is how your personal experience and also the writings that of like Natasha Kelly and among others Audre Lorde, Maya Yim contrast to for example the narrative that is currently on display from Susan Nyman's Learning from the Germans, Race and Memory of Evil, which is a book that was recently published or published in 2019, highlighting how um, the American society can learn from how Germans confronted the past, specifically the idea or the argument that Germany has made atonement for its evils and wrongdoings with respect to the Holocaust, through by having more memorializations and uh, kind of economic retribution for the anti-Semitic and uh, crimes and uh, crimes that were have had during the Nazi regime. So in some ways, this is a, a kind of recovery project or argument uh, to suggest that the Germans somehow do it better than the U.S. Which for me, the barometer for the U.S. is the core of the earth so it's below the floor in some hot steamy <laughs> background so i would i would i would never use the us as a barometer for anything but the some people have critiqued uh, nyman's argument for a host of reasons uh, one of them being the most obvious after the civil war the united states as a settler colony had to still reckon and white people had to live with black folk it wasn't like the completely eliminated uh, black Americans, even if they wanted to, through Jim Crow segregation or racial terror, but that we still see the remnants of people who haven't fully dealt with um, a nation that had been divided by slavery and other forms of racial capitalistic terror. And that was not the case in Germany where the Nazi regime unfortunately deported and or murdered a majority of the German Jewish population and in surrounding areas to the point that the memorialization happens in this more abstract sense and they have, don't have to actually f physically face the people, most Germans, that is white Germans of Christian descent, don't have to face the, the crimes they've had to deal with and live amongst the people that they oppressed the, or at least their ancestors oppressed. So, and when you tie this then to how anti-blackness operates and the legacy of German colonialism on the African continent, very little in that text is said about the retribution for people in Namibia, Tanzania, Cameroon, etc. So it's it's interesting um, that this proclamation about learning from Germans suggests that somehow the Germans do it better about racism when compared to the United States, it's just a different history, A, and two, it ignores um, the kind of massive violence on the continent. So what are your thoughts about <laughs> Nyman's work and it, have you read it? Or I've not read Nyman's work. I've, I think I've consciously avoided it because I think it's problematic. Um, I mean, I certainly don't, that's not my approach for all problematic texts, 
but I think in this day and age, that's like a form of self-care that I'm not willing to like get into right now. Um, I think that she's wrong. The Germans have not, are not a model to sort of, that the US to look for, should look for. And you see this on the, on, on a variety of sort of social media platforms where they're all like, ooh, the Germans, we should look to them because they're a model. And it's like, there's not, there's even conflict about, you know, repatriating for years. There's conflict about repatriating the bones that were at the Charité of Namibian people from the genocide. So I think the suggestion that like they've they've gotten it in gear in terms of racism, perhaps that's the case for anti-Semitism, but I don't think that's the case for anti-Semitism either. Um, I think certainly there's um, certainly sort of retribution um, that, you know, Israel gets money, there's sort of, there's a, there's the sort of Jewish museum, but all of these things occurred later. I mean, in the aftermath of the world, Second World War, there was a silence and a complete, um, you know, um, er, uh, erasure of those dynamics. It was sort of like, oh, Hitler's gone. We're under American liberation. We're no longer racist and everything is cool. And we've got nylons and chocolate because African American GIs are giving us nylons and chocolates and now we like them. Um, whereas like there's still DP camps, dis displaced persons camps until like 1957. So like, I think the fact that they were ignorant about those, those dynamics or consciously forgetting or having like a sense of amnesia about like the colonial context, which informed the, the, the genocide is quite striking. Um, so I don't think that Germans are a model. I think that they, there's a lot to, that they need to still learn, especially this sort of constant negotiation about Namibia and calling it a genocide, apologizing, not apologizing, sort of tiptoeing back, like the recognition of that um, is huge. Also the Majimashi uh, uh, war in Tanzania. So, I mean, like you have all of these things going on in terms of German colonial um, depossession and genocide uh, and racial killing that feed into the racial science of the Nazis. And that, you know, Eugene Fisher, he was, you know, he was a, uh, one of the primary architects of the sort of racial science of the Nazis was was very very significant in Namibia really helping to sort of dehumanize and create this sense of the other in terms of so the the Namia and Herero people so I don't think that the Germans are a model and I think what's so striking about that is there that that sort of the Holocaust oftentimes allows people to forget their sort of German colonialism as a, a precursor for this exclusionary and genocidal um, tendencies in which Germanus is is offered as Germanus is offered as a sort of model for whiteness in which um, you know Africans from Namibia or her, um, or um, from Tanzania, Togo, etc., are never going to have access to Germanus. Same with German Jews; they're never going to have access to Germanus. Same with second, um, third generation Turkish German. There's a presumption that they're never going to have access to Germanus because it's a sort of white category in which all, on which you know, there's a super whiteness that helps to sort of glue Germanus together. Um, so I don't see them as a model for anything. In fact, I think in many ways, Germany is still far behind in what they need to do. Um, and the same is said for the US in terms of these Confederate monuments that only emerged in like the era of the uh, sort of Civil War era as a way of sort of really staking claim about like, we want segregation to remain and inter integration is horrible. And so I don't think either space is, uh, either country is doing well on that part in terms of um, colonial memory and racial and, and racial discussions of racial violence. Now, I want to turn to gender. You had a book chapter called Transnational Feminist Solidarity, Black German Women and the Politics of Belonging, which was published in the edited volume, Gendering Knowledge in Africa and the African Diaspora. And you wrote, quote, Afro-German women, along with others, developed empowering black spaces uh, that helped them constitute bonds, accentuating and positioning their activism within their movements and communities. Black Germans cultivated transnational solidarity with individuals throughout Germany, the African diaspora, and the world. Can you explain who are the main um, feminists involved and what types of institutional support fostered Afro-German feminist belonging in the essay that you wrote, as well as even beyond that? Yeah, so that essay, um, there are a variety of women who are involved in ADEFRA, which was an Afro-German 
uh, organization, feminist organization that was founded in 1986. Um, so women like Yasmin Edding, um, Goody, um, Judy Gummidge, um, Rhea Cheatham, Katarina Gontoya, Katia Kinda, and a variety of other women created a variety, um, created several Adefra chapters across Germany. So like Berlin, Munich, Hamburg, Bremen, etc. And so they, many of them, and Mai was also involved in Adefra, uh, Maya Eam was also involved in Adefra, Katarina Gontoya certainly, and all of these women um, forged connections quite interestingly at like kitchen tables. So they were talking and hanging out at kitchen tables. This is certainly not uncharacteristic of, uh, with other diaspora groups, the sort of emergence of the kitchen table press in, in the US with Barbara Smith and Audre Lorde and Sherry Moraga. Um, but in the German case, these women were sort of um, getting together, mostly talking about um, some of the films that were on television about black German identity, some of the um, or, um, some of the social events that emerged through ISD initiative of Schwarze Deutsche that also emerged in the 1980s and 1985, and they basically go to a, a conference in um, in the UK in 1988. Um, I think Katerina goes as um, as sorry 1987. Katerina goes as does uh, Maim, and they connect up with these other Black feminists from across the globe. Um, Andrea McLaughlin. Gloria Joseph is there, Audre Lorde is there, and they become connected to this Black um, Women's Studies Summer Institute, Cross-Cultural Black Women's Studies Summer Institute. And the first institute took place in 1987, and it's from there that they start to forge all of these connections with other Black um, black feminists, in which they see Blackness as not tied to phenotype alone, that it represents a cultural and political identity. And so there's sort of women from the, the, there are women from New Zealand, there are women from Panama, there are women from Colombia, all coming to talk about and engage with Black feminist writings and theories. And from there, you know, a variety of other Black German women go to subsequent um, um, cross-cultural Black women's studies summer institutes. Um, there was one in New York, there was one in, um, in Zimbabwe, there was one in New Zealand, and then there was the fifth one that took place in Germany. And so the essay, the chapter deals with the, the event that took, take place, took place in Germany in 1991. And they bring together all of these phenomenal speakers. So they're engaging with Black German feminists, um, they're engaging with Black um, French feminists, Afro-Dutch feminists, and you know, Bearable Gate um, Gilroy is there. Um, Paul Gilroy's mom. There are also Philomena Assad is there. You know, she's a great um, Dutch activist and um, and scholar. Writes about um, anti-racism, um, anti-racism and racism in the everyday. And so they're surrounded by all of these women. They bring everybody to Germany, and they consciously bring everybody to Germany because they're like Germany's racist, and everyone needs to see that Germany's racist. One of the great quotes that I found was like we're glad to host this conference in this racist country so that like people can see how racist Germany is. Even with the wall down, it doesn't change the fact that Germany is racist and that these claims of like Ein Volk are not really, we're not all one people. We're actually very, differences embedded in how, we, how, um, how people are excluded and included in the nation. And so the conference is about them coming together on talking about sort of black feminist work, engaging with black feminist um, scholars, artists, activists, and they really sort of share their share a variety of strategies of how they can survive in these sort of white oppressive spaces and what, what tactics that they use, what um, notions of identity work for them what emotions that they use to sort of connect with one another. How do they feel about one another, you know, establishing a sense of trust. And I think the a volume that emerges from this conference, it's published by um, um, Marion Craft, and uh, it comes out in 1993, or excuse me, 1994, and it's called Black Women of the World, and it includes essays from many of the participants of this 1991 conference. And so they're conscious to really sort of show the plight of Black German women in Germany, but they're also fully aware of how privileged they may they are in comparison to women from the global south. So they're they're not sort of claiming the they're not claiming uh, to have the hardships like you know women from the global south or dealing with that degree of like neocolonialism in some of those contexts. And so it's a it's a, a moment for uh, for for not only sort of feminist solidarity, but it's also a moment to sort of recognize that like 
I think this is undergirding the larger Black German movement that like we can share and connect through our differences, that we don't have to be the same, but we can sort of see our differences and acknowledge them and try to work to combat or eradicate um, different forms of racism. Yeah, and I think it's so fascinating you bring up the question around uh, not just like the class differences that might persist, but what does it mean to be Black in the global North, despite some of the issues that might arise through police or state violence, the constant sense that you might not be from a place or being questioned about one's heritage, and the realities of what colonialism has done to Black women in the global South, um, and the abject, or overall, and the abject kind of dispossession of wealth, even when the resources, both natural and otherwise, are plentiful. And so to have the space and the time for people to actually meet each other physically and talk and engage and dialogue, especially, I can imagine, in a moment where border regimes might not have allowed everyone from the global south who might have wanted to come to a place like Berlin and Germany um, to visit. And you know, right now there's a pandemic going on. We can um, feel the 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 limits of travel for good reasons as well, because it's better for the earth and um, to minimize our carbon um, emissions. But we're also kind of seeing how confinement is limiting our abilities to move around and to really meet um, outside of virtual spaces. So it sounds like this meeting at least gave us, uh, gave people the sense to see in real life how global hierarchies persist within blackness. I think that's a you you encapsulated it quite well. But I think the conference is great because it's not so they meet in they meet in Frankfurt, Bielefeld, and Berlin. And so they give they give the participants a slice of different aspects of Germany. And they're, you know, they come up with resolutions at the end of the conference. So they come up with like uh nine resolutions in which they're addressing uh they're addressing that distinction between sort of the global now the global north and the global south. And they're sort of calling for reparations they're calling for i mean like the the that's written in the one of the one of the one of the resolutions that they're like we demand reparations indemnities and i'm like yes economic yeah i'm like echo that cost of the sort of economic and material losses that they sh they call out governments european governments they sort of related back to sort of the um land depossession especially in new zealand and which they you know the more um um the i'm, I'm always sort of blanking on the name um uh, uh, do you do you remember the name of sort of the indigenous population the Mari, sorry. Yeah, Lamar, yeah. Um, who, yeah, who are also sort of talking about their sort of layered, um, layered uh, colonial legacy in terms of you know, the British and the French. And so they're very keen to sort of talk about those distinctions and talk about the necessity of, um, of attending to Global South issues. They're also mentioning sterilization of women of color, um, sort of track, the track of women of color, which they also talk about in in their um, in their resolution. So they they're cognizant that they are you know that black black German women are cognizant that they're in a privileged position in comparison to some of their other um, their other counterparts across the globe, and they sort of state um, state that explicitly, um, and that their other participants are keen to point that out too that they recognize that black German women are you know. A, a, better off economically than others. And that's due to like Germany's social safety net and a variety of other, I mean, a, a variety of other um, dynamics that are not common elsewhere. And so it's interesting to see that distinction and it's interesting to see them not try to create a sense of hierarchy or like we are we are more oppressed than like other women in Zimbabwe or we are we are more oppressed than women in Panama. There's a sense of like this is a global oppression. We're trying to combat white supremacy, which is inextricably tied to colonialism, inextricably tied to sort of genocide, and people should be paid for this. Uh, they should be given money back so that they can also claim a sense of economic autonomy for themselves. And so I think that that conference for me was so striking. I mean, I wrote a little bit about it in my dissertation, but I didn't, I didn't write about it as much as I did in that chapter. And I think for me, I was just struck by the sort of global connections that Black German women consciously forge, but I was also struck by the fact that this conference, among other things that were organized in the Black German movement, was a form of knowledge production. 
they're producing knowledge about colonialism, about the overlapping histories of colonialism, about the potential for blackness, about indigenous um, struggles. And so I think it was, it was good for me to see that conference, but throughout the whole manuscript that black Germans in the movement were activist intellectuals who were cultivating a new, a new epistemic way of understanding uh, understanding the world and understanding their history. That just that sounds so exciting. I like the way that you're asserting how the act of coming together these collective activist spaces, whether driven by people who are part of an intellectual movement in the German context or people coming from a global south, the cultivating community building in itself is knowledge making, which I, I so often get um, frustrated when people make a separation between activists on the ground who might be doing the work, often women, queer, <laughs> on the front lines, uh, transgender, non-binary people who lead black movement so often, and then versus the people who might be, how do you say, getting credit for those for those movements and for what it means to be part of those activist spaces, AKA, like the theorists are often men, cis, white in some cases, and what implications that has for uh, shaping uh, new struggles, new movements today and beyond. And I guess one, one thing I want to say is that how, or ask is how do you think black uh, German diasporic collective spaces um, exercise decoloniality compared to the Black diasporic groups that are activists in the U.S., for example? Ooh, that's a good question. And, uh, um, I think I sort of loved your episode with Natasha Kelly in which she talked about Faba Kenan, in which she was like, you know, Faba Kenan was like a post-colonial, decolonial text that they may have not seen it as such or labeled it as such. And I think that's the larger movement too. But I think the Black German movement was a post-colonial movement in an effort to sort of deconstruct um, whitewashed narratives of, um, of history, to, to challenge the erasure or the colonial amnesia about Germany's you know, colonial legacy, and to also sort of reimagine what knowledge can be when you allow Black people to write and theorize and share in the variety of forms that they do. So I see the, the entire movement being, uh, being uh, a post-colonial decolonial movement that challenges whitewashed notions of German identity, of belonging, and really is grounded by like queer women. Like it's literally queer women, queer black German women who are fostering a connection to Audre Lorde, who was teaching at the FU, the Free University, um, and then from there creating, you know, ISD groups and then creating ADEFRA groups and then, you know, also connecting with other Black people of the diaspora living in, in, in Berlin. So I think it, the entire movement is about sort of decolon decolonizing knowledge and trying to, uh, to really challenge white, the white status quo in Germany and the sort of white status quo and the forms of knowledge production that emerged that are always uh, erased and ignored that simultaneously erased and ignored black um black black the black diaspora in german context and and the and i say this in the uh, in the same token that that like white germans also see affinity with like african-americans so on the one hand they can be like african-americans are awesome we're gonna you know we're gonna claim solid yeah we're gonna claim solid well i well, I think in the 60s, you know, where it's like, ooh, 60s, ooh, let's let's help with civil rights activism. Like, we're dedicated like that, you know, the Students for Democratic um, Change. Let's, let's, we're dedicated to civil rights activism. We're dedicated to the Black Power Movement. Um, but the, the reality is, like, they can certainly be dedicated to anti-racism outside of the borders of Germany, but they weren't necessarily dedicated to, you know, anti-racism within the borders of Germany. Um, and so I think that's the, that sort of, afro like the afrophilia where they're like ooh african american culture african american people awesome whereas like you know black germans and other individuals of african descent are not so awesome and this sort of so there's a created they create a hierarchy in themselves and i think the black german movement tries to sort of disentangle that they say like look we we all are suffering from um oppression and 
racialization and that there are different processes of racialization and that the movement tries to show those different processes and the insidious nature of it in the everyday, the insidious nature of it in the sort of um, institutional and in its institutional forms. And I think it, I mean, so they certainly borrow from like other diasporic groups. So they're borrowing from like an African-American tradition. They're also borrowing from a black British tradition. They're borrowing from um, the anti-colonial struggles so that they're using a cadre of diasporic. They have a diasporic toolkit, so to speak, that they're borrowing from and using different, um, different terminologies, different practices. And I think the, the, the case with, um, the case was sort of a black diaspora in the US is that like there is this you know there is a global cachet that like African Americans have that that is not necessarily um, replicated elsewhere. Although like you see you see um, you see other diaspora communities like say the Black British communities or even Black fr French communities. There's a sense of like oh we we see each other, but I think the Black German case represents something in which there's not really a full knowledge about the, the richness of that diasporic legacy and the richness of that, that anti-racist um, activism that predates the modern Black German movement of the 1980s and 1990s. And so it's a younger, <laughs> it's a younger movement in comparison, but it still is a dynamic movement in, uh, it, just as the, the, the African-American um, efforts are. And so I think that's been interesting and sort of that distinction. And I think the, in sort of 60s, in the 60s and sort of 70s, especially in the US, especially in, in, in Britain, you have like Black British, um, Black, the Black British Panthers, the Black Panthers in Oakland, the Black British Panthers in London. And there's really a sort of Marxist-Leninist approach to those groups. That's not the case in, you know, in terms of thinking about these earlier incarnations of Black activism. That's not necessarily the case in the 80s and 90s for Black German activists. It's not a Marxist-led um, um, revolution, and they're not sort of engaging with those, those texts. And, they're, and they see them, but they are cognizant of the class implications, but because of the different, different you know, social welfare net that is in Germany, there's not the same sort of um, stark, um, stark economic disparities. And so I think that's a, that's a distinction too, that like these, these, these other sort of examples of black activism in the US um, and um, Britain, they're really guided by some of those sort of class, those stark class divisions. And it's not to suggest that they're not stark class divisions in the German context, because there are. But there's also, there's, there's quite a bit, um, but in terms of sort of guiding the sort of ideology, guiding the, the Black German movement of the 80s and 90s, it's not driven by, it's not the Marxist-Leninism uh, isn't guiding the movement per se. So I want to talk about institutions and particularly academic uh, institutions. Um, so you currently or at some point served as a diversity, equity, inclusion committee for the German Social Studies Association. Is that correct? Yes. I'm Still doing it, yeah. Okay, and also on the editorial board for Central European History, the executive board for the Journal of Civil and Human Rights, and I, I saw also the advisory board of the International Federation for Women, Research in Women's History. So you, you've had a role in various institutional kind of affiliations, which in some ways allows the space potentially for scholarship to include more Black people, more people of color, more women um, who um, might help, help to uh, sharpen, deepen um, these intellectual traditions. How do you think these, these positions and networks strengthen Black German studies as a whole or Black scholarship as a whole, especially with respect to history? And as we currently deal with massive polarization between far right and elements, who want to defund knowledge or to somehow um, challenge scholarship and intellectual production, especially that those coming from people of color, from black people. How do you see your role within these institutions or other people within these institutions and in helping to allow the scholarship to continue? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think like the editorial board of the Central European History and the International Federation for Women's 
research are new. So I just got on them this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think for both of those, my key, especially for the Central European history is I want to do a, a, a special issue on Black Europe for that um, journal so that we are aware of the diversity of Black Europe and what constitutes that and expanding the borders for what um, what can be included for Black Europe. I also think it's important for our, the board members to have a code of conduct in terms of checking their own privilege and racism and sexism and misogyny. And so I need to, um, I have actually have a meeting with the the editor of the journal next week to talk about establishing a code of conduct for the board members because I think if we're going to be uh, board members, we also need to abide by some etiquette and also respect uh, respect uh, scholars and other um, intellectuals in a variety of spaces. And I'm not sure that they've had anything like they don't have a code of conduct for board members and what they want, how they want their board members to act. Um, and I just don't want our board members to be racist. And if they are racist, I want them to be called out and I want a mechanism to be in place so that we we deal with um, with whomever is racist in the, on the board. And for the, and I have a meeting next week as well for the, the International um, Women's, um, the International Federation for Women's Research. And so I'll see what I can do in, in that capacity. I'm excited to see what is, uh, is uh, I'm able to do. For the German studies, I think for me, I would try to do this um, Black Diaspora Studies Network in which I created it in like 2015 to try to bring together scholars who are doing awesome work on um, Black Germany, but then Black Europe more broadly, and trying to invite scholars from Europe to come over to the GSA, which is oftentimes a very exclusionary and um, disrespectful and racist space. And so my effort with that uh, network was to try to foster opportunities for change through highlighting and spotlighting the great research that junior scholars are doing in, in, in Black European and Black German studies. And, you know, we, I, it followed by, I had two seminars that dealt with sort of Black, the first seminar dealt with like Black German studies and the second seminar dealt with uh, Black European political practices. And so we invited scholars from the from Europe to come and we exchanged papers ahead of time. And after those two things, we decided that it would be useful to have a network that would have a set core, a set um, number of panels that would be able to be on the GSA panel that dealt with race, racialization, uh, uh, not only race racialization, but comparative race and racialization. So like talking about communities in um, Turkish German communities, black communities, a variety of other Asian German communities and why different aspects of racialization need to be discussed in tandem. And so that was the, the thought about having that network. And so I think this is my last year on the network. It'll cycle off to someone else, which is fine. More people can join and try to create a set number of panels that come to the GSA that deal with these themes. And I've just joined, I think in spring, I joined the diversity, equity, inclusion um, committee for the GSA because I was like, it's racist and it's got to stop. And I was so tired of being mistaken for the other three black people who are in German studies in which every, every conference at the German Studies Association, I'm either mistaken for Priscilla, Kira or someone else in which we, we, and they are mistaken for me and, and it happens every year um, on a variety of other things in which I'm, you know, they think I'm the wait staff and I need to take away their wine glass. So, so I think it was, it was driven by like my highly racialized experiences at the GSA to try to affect some change. And so we wrote a statement um, in, 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 in response to George Floyd we're also organizing an event for the digital GSA um, conference that's taking the place in the beginning of October. And we also want to come up with a, a set of like to do, don't do's, to do's and do, to do's and don't do lists so that there's a particular way that our, our, our members need to engage respectfully with scholars. And there's always like a dismissive response about work on Black German studies. There's a dismissive response about other work that deals with different, um, different aspects of racialization. And so we want to change the culture of the GSA. I don't think it's going to be an easy tactic to do, um, but we already are working on some like policy things on this end and thinking about um, how we move on to other events at the GSA. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I have, I'm on a committee with a variety of other 
pretty cool people who are committed to the task. But yeah, we don't think it's going to be a, a year, a year thing. And then we're done. We think it's going to be an ongoing process to change the culture of the GSA. Um, and it's not going to be easy. Yeah. And what you're describing is in many ways, like when I think about decolonization and another guest on the show, Jessica had indicated this, which is that decolonization is an active process. It's, she considers it a verb. It's not uh, something that perhaps is a proclamation and then you end there, but one has to constantly be engaged. And what you're describing is institutional mechanisms, self-initiated, as well as through the people who are already coming ready to dismantle racism within these educational, institutional, academic spaces, somehow that can be done by actively working on it. And I like also the idea of rotating people into some of these positions so that people don't get burnt out because that's the reality of this moment where labor, especially a lot of unpaid labor, is disproportionately the burden of women, queer people, gender nonconforming people, people who are doing reproductive care work and expected to do education about stuff that they that others could have used wikipedia.org google.com it goes on and on like there are resources <laughs> available online that we as you know black women uh, black folk are sometimes expected to give for free but i actually want to turn towards the end of the uh, interview and i've been asking people this regularly because i think it's important to check in about care and joy which is to ask what are some of the acts of joy and care that you've engaged in recent months? Ooh, yes. I think the acts of care and joy, I think seeing my therapist on the regular has been so good for me, especially during the pandemic. Um, I, I, I'm all a big proponent about mental health. Um, that was like, that was, yeah, that was one of the appointments I needed to do last week, which I was like, Edna, I got I to gotta schedule because I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it, feeling the burn. Um, so uh, meeting with my therapist regularly, doing yoga. Like I, I, I mean, so my yoga studio sadly closed because of the pandemic. And so I've had to now do yoga at home when I had a toddler running around too. So that was like hard to balance, but trying to do yoga and meditation has been really good for me. So I try to meditate twice a day in the morning and at night. And there's some days where I need like multiple meditations <laughs> to get through, but just small sessions of meditation have been um, forms of joy. Um, and I think I'm also heartened to, I'm like, I'm, I'm really moved to see the activism that has occurred in, you know, since May to now. Um, and I think what's striking to me, uh, is the global reverberations of it that like people across the globe care about what's going on here and then they see the significance and they they live the significance of how it's what how it's impacting them in their own respective places but to see that you know those signs of for george floyd across the globe was really heartening and and so just it actually just made me cry to see that people care so much about this struggle and it's also just great to see that it is fostered so so much additional activism and anti-colonialism anti activism, challenging the colonial legacy. I think that's been so good for me to see across the globe, toppling those statues, you know, and there are more statues that need to topple, but that they're, you know, affecting the degree of change. And so that's positive to see. And then to see that my students are also getting into the activism in a variety of ways has been very, very good for me to see. In which they're like, I've gotten into more activism after our, I taught a human rights class in the fall, um, excuse me, in the spring, and I'm teaching a women's human rights class now. And one of my students from the spring was like, I got into more activism, our class, and then like George Floyd just made me compelled to do more. And so that's encouraging to see that students are saying, okay, I got to do something. I need to handle the legacy of like Anglo and Hispanic uh, violence here in New Mexico, or I need to do racial violence in wherever I'm living right now. So I think that's been, that's been good for me to see, even though simultaneously we're still inundated by Black death 
and the necropolitics of, of COVID and state violence is just, you know, abounds. These moments of these moments of hope are also good and just really also trying to take care of my mental health so that I'm not like, I'm not depleted and, you know, lying on the ground weeping. There's actually this podcast that I love listening to therapy for black girls. And what in their last episode I listened to, it was on the relationship between therapy and healing and uh, nature and how just taking walk outside sometimes can help uh, connect black people to the earth and that as people who often or historically have been displaced or dispossessed of having access to the earth um, nature can allow us to really check in with our emotions to expand our minds etc and so the things that you're, you're bringing up in terms of healing practices uh, whether it be uh, yoga meditation mind body as well as just the spaces that can give us green uh, energy is so important in a moment where we go from an apocalyptic decision, political decision to pandemic to whatever. And like you said, black death. And um, it's important to also like connect with the things we do have. And we have breath. We do. We have breath and exactly. And we can, we can hike. I can hike in the mountains here. It's New Mexico is very picturesque and that's also good. Uh, hiking with the toddler is a little hard sometimes so uh, but yeah you're right and I, but I think this year has made me realize even more so like self-care and my mental health are two of the same they're like you know one of the same excuse me like they're I need to I can only do this if I'm, I'm if I'm well myself thank you so much for being part of the decolonization action podcast thank you thank you for the invitation it was really really great to talk to you My name is Edna Bonom, and you just listened to Season 3, Episode 6 of the Decolonization Action Podcast. This episode featured digitally-based voices in Germany and the United States. I would like to express my gratitude to the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science for institutional support, and Christina Comer. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or find more information about the people and events reference, please visit www.decolonizationandaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for joining us.